You are listening to the Big Tree Mind podcast. I'm Lana Lantos. On today's episode, Mike Hulbloom and I speak about the creative process and what it takes to stay committed regardless of any external pressures or distractions. I have this fascination with the creative process because it brings so much joy into my life to be a creative person. And I reflect on our time together as meditators in a community in Toronto. But I also ask him questions about his own creative process and what it takes for him to produce as much work as he does. Mike Kuhlblum has made over hundreds of films and um, has written many books. And he is the kind of artist that works every day on his work. And I find that really extraordinary um, because my mind tends to get focused on so many different things. And so... I hope that you take a listen to this episode and that you find a little nugget maybe of something that inspires you. Um, as always, each episode includes the whole person. So we also talk about difficult feelings and our own lives. I hope that you enjoy it. I, I have spent a lot of time lately doing certain breathing exercises and really thinking about presence and what part of me is able to show up and be present. And, you know, we have some experience with that, with that question of like, who's here right now? Or, you know, who's, who's showing up right now feels like a very old, familiar question. And I'm wondering about your own process with presence and also with creating something, with creating a film or creating something that you care about. When you were speaking, I was just reminded of this moment. Um, we were on a uh, we were on a retreat. I don't. There was a there was many people there. <laughs> it was a silent it was a silent meditation retreat, but there was also yoga involved. And by the time the yoga started, you know, we'd already had two or three long sessions of of silent meditation and then you know silent breakfast and then there's silent yoga of course with of course there's no music and of course there's no guidance everyone's just on this and it's super intense you know like the room is like people are you know maximum they're just at their maximum right from the very instant that the practice starts as if that's the point you know it's like I'm going up that mountain today right now you know <laughs> I'm going to start start at the top of the mountain and then I'm going to go higher so anyways, I remember, uh, I think I got a ride back with you and some other people and, and you were saying, yeah, you know, I could see everybody like, you know, they looked like plastic man and plastic woman, like just their limbs were just, uh, you know, all wrapped and they were upside down. They were hanging off the ceiling and all this. And I was just trying to, I was just trying to raise my hand, you know, I was just trying to like <laughs> feel my shoulder <laughs> or something. And it was, you know, for an hour. And it was like, oh, yeah, right, my shoulder. Yeah, what's going on with my shoulder? It just felt like a very, um, like a necessary antidote, you know, to all that striving or something, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, why are we trying to get somewhere when we're, it's just so hard, it's just hard enough to just be here. My movie-making practice, um, you know, there's some people 
you point to them and go, oh, you are a born poet. Like, this, you're, you've been put into this world, you know, so that you can say all that incredible stuff or write it down or whatever, you know. And, and then someone else, like, wow, like I've never heard somebody with that kind of touch on the piano. Like, that's an incredible, you know, that's just a gift. So I was never one of those artists, you know. Nobody looked at me and went like, oh my, that's fantastic. Like I, I started at the bottom, you know, like I was the worst in the class. I was totally confused. I didn't know how to do anything. I was technically terrible and I had to work with machines because I was making films. And in those days, like, it's hard to believe, but we actually didn't, like the portable telephone hadn't been invented yet. Like, I know it's shocking, shocking. The portable, the personal computer, like no one had those. And it wasn't invented. So you actually had these terrible machines that, you know, you had to wind up and they broke down all the time. It was terrible. And um, anyway, um, so this went on for, you know, many years. The only thing that I had in my corner, as it were, was that I worked really hard. Even though I didn't know how to work and I didn't, yeah, I didn't know how to work. So eventually I worked up the nerve to start asking some people about what I was doing, you know? And um, eventually there, out of some uh, non-filmic, like just chit chats and hanging out. And like, I, I had some friends and they could, we could just tell each other the truth. And um, what they invariably told me about was my mistakes. What had happened is that, um, I think, the way that I experienced it, and I experienced it as a catastrophe, as the end of the world, as I knew it. Because I was building a certain kind of world that was made up of, um, you know, that street corner and the way the light just kind of glints off the golden bricks at a certain hour. And then his face as he steps into that light and the way that he raises his hand and then there's a dog on a leash that's walking by on the other side of the street. You know, it was just like these sounds and these pictures, they come together and they mean something outside, externally. But they also mean something inside, internally. It's a picture of what's outside and it's a picture of what's inside. And then um, this frame is my frame of how, what the world is, you know? And I'm attached to that frame. And when someone says to me, as I've heard so often in my whole life, that, uh, Mike, like this movie doesn't make, has <laughs> make any sense whatsoever. Like there's, there's no meaning in any of these things. Like it's just some random stuff. Like there's no structure here. There's no, <laughs> etc. It's like, what, what are you, what, <laughs> what do you mean? Like this is everything I've ever experienced is in this, is in this shot, you know? And so, of course, what I did initially was I resisted. It's like, you're wrong. <laughs> um, in other words, I'm hanging on with everything that I have to my view, to my frame, this frame that I very, built very carefully or very carelessly. I just didn't know. But eventually, as the years went by, I started to understand that, um, that they were right. And what happened then is that this frame that I was holding on to with everything, with all my strength, my puny strength, 
all of a sudden this frame had this gigantic crack right across the whole frame. And I realized in this sort of dizzying moment that I was living in two worlds. There was the old world, like the world that I used to know, the me that I used to be, the me that sort of made those weird decisions to put things together in a certain way. But there was also the other world. And I didn't really know the other world yet. But there was a door that was opening. And if I wanted, if I could step through, for instance, my guilt or my shame, at least at the very least my bad feelings, then I could step through that door and see something else, something I couldn't imagine, you know? And eventually, I think I just got tired of my shame. It's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, the shame, right? That's the shame again, right? It's, it's like having the same breakfast every day of your life. It's like, yeah, yeah, the shame again, the shame, the, 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 uh, the, the shame granola. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of it. <clears throat> and then I could walk through that door and see something else. And that's how I learned how to make films, you know, by making mistakes. The mistakes were actually um, very precious, very precious teachers. It's like um, a teacher that's grown up from a seed into a whole being, you know, except just for you, to teach you this, this special thing, you know. And it's hard to stand there and receive that. Like, it's really hard to do that because I had to let go of so many things. But it's, um, yeah, it was very uh, beautiful and terrifying. Do you find yourself ever noticing, you know, a feeling take over you as you're making a film or working on a project of some sort that feels really um, like that feeling or that part of you is starting to take over the process. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering more specifically if you try to work from a more sort of neutral place, what I would call quote unquote, more peaceful kind of container, or do you allow yourself to sort of be taken by different parts that come through? Maybe this is a very naive question, but I just have some sort of curiosity around what parts are really allowed to sort of to show up and take over. Um, look, as a movie maker, I think I'm a bit of an outlier because um, most filmmakers um, binge. They, um, when they're making, you know, they're working on some, you know, big project they're pouring everything they have into it they work at it like crazy people and then at some point it's over i don't work like that um i work like uh it's like a painter that has a studio you get up you have breakfast you shower you go to your studio and then you start working doesn't matter if you're um feeling tired or um, angry, or happy, or sad. It doesn't you just? Your job is you just show up there. You don't know. 
what's going to happen exactly um doesn't matter and all those moods and inflections all those different parts that's just going to be part of what what the thing is right the interaction with the pictures and the sounds and your moods and all of the old voices you have and the new voices you have and all that what i found and maybe you've experienced this as well um because you've done so much formal practice um like one of the things i don't do formal practice anymore but one of the things that i found very helpful was that you have the embodied experience of yourself changing i was overjoyed now i'm only happy you know i was so angry now i'm neutral i don't feel angry you actually feel that in your body like you've changed and because in formal practice you take that time right to pay attention moment to moment to what exactly is happening in the body and so for me i feel fear like right in my the middle of my chest near my heart center it's a very warm feeling not warming but it's like my chest gets warm as if it could just collapse you know just like um but what i've experienced in formal practice is that that feeling of warmth and collapse goes away slowly fades away you know and um in other words that it's not like god i don't need to make a god out of my fear i don't need to worship my fear as if it's going to be out there forever so i don't need to make a certain kind of god out of the state i should be in in order to make my work i, I see artists do this you know it's like yeah you know i need to go to um uh, uh you know i need to go to melbourne in australia in order to do my writing because that's just where my that's where my good vibe is you know like i need to see those trees and i need to see the koala bears and i need to see the, 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 the whatever it is you know and it's like yeah but i mean i guess if you've got lots of money you can do that but if you don't have money you're just gonna have to make do with whatever mood you happen to be in and if there's no koala bears in the neighborhood i guess you'll have to make do with like a cat that walks by or a squirrel or whatever it is you know and you just um, go on. Right. Wow. That is such an, like, that is such an excellent answer. And I appreciate it so much because it's, it's just for anyone that hears this episode and thinks about that things need to be perfect in order to do something, or even that they need to do something that sometimes you just need to sit and just look at look at it and just begin somewhere you know to stop idealizing these sorts of you know writing camps and all all sorts of things that i i always feel like there's some pressure to be a part of some sort of like artist commune or something to be an artist or if only i if i take that one more workshop i'm sure then my book will be perfect right but i better not start before i do that workshop you know right yeah. right I'm curious about how something like bad feelings shows up in the process. Um, I've been working for some years about a portrait on a portrait of my friend Judy. And um, um, 
she's an extremely uh, eloquent speaker. You know, she can speak in full sentences, and she's um, both an intellectual and a populist. She believes that it's very important that, like, everyone be able to understand, you know, what she's saying. She talks in very clear, plain language, even though, even when she's talking about complex things. And I felt a lot of responsibility, you know, because she's my friend, you know, to, to, to sort of get it right, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then, so what would happen is... Um, you know, she's a real extrovert. She's the kind of person that talks to strangers on elevators, something that would mortify me. Like, I would feel shame so many times when I was with Judy. You know, she'd just walk up to somebody who was, like, walking a dog and saying, like, I love that kind of dog. Like, that's so special to me. But it's like, oh, Judy, like, don't talk to them. Like, we don't know them. You know, she's like, um, we're just part of the world. Like, we're part of the whole world, you know? Or, um, like, we were walking, we always go down Philosopher's Walk and, and there's this dog barking at a tree, you know? And so, you know, and then some stranger's walking by and she goes, look, look. She turns, you know, the stranger like, look, look, that dog is is literally barking up the wrong tree. Ah, it's incredible. So, you know, in other words, she's so open-hearted, right? Like she's just very genuinely open-hearted. She loves just talking to different people. She's not trying to sell them something or whatever, you know? She's just like, we're all connected somehow, right? And of course, I believe this intellectually, but I, I don't want to go through that. Like, I have social anxieties. I don't want to talk to anyone I don't know very well. Anyway, so I made a edit of the movie, and and then I sent it to Judy, and of course, she was way too generous, and and then there was a bunch of things she didn't say, and then I sent it, you know, to some friends, and they just. Um, I mean, I think I was on the phone with one friend for an hour and a half. They talked nonstop, and all I did was write notes. I think I wrote like 11 pages of single-space notes, and every note was like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Like, the title of your film is wrong. It was called Judy. The title of your film is wrong. Like, this isn't a film about Judy. Like, you don't even give us enough information about that. Failure. Number two, you only have one person speaking in the film. You know, you can't do that. That's a total failure. You'll never be able to pull that off. Number three, it has no structure whatsoever. It's just this random assemblage of crap. Number four, you know, it's just like 11 pages of this, right? And then I, and and the point is, which what I learned is, you don't defend yourself, right? I'm not here to argue with you. I'm here to receive this different point of view, right? So it's like, um, thank you thank you for destroying me for crushing me you know so and then after that was over i you know i just lay down and i cried what else can you do and um and then i had sent it to one other person and they sent me a whole bunch of notes and they and those notes were almost identical they said many of the same things and um so yeah i was paralyzed like i couldn't go forward i couldn't go back i knew that i had i'd been in this situation many times before and i understood as well that what they're describing is not me they're describing this experience this collection of pictures and sounds which has its own needs its own requirements its own shape right just like when you're um, with a child, even though they're completely dependent on you, completely reliant on you. They couldn't live one day, right, without you. But they're not you, right? Like, they are separate somehow. 
So um, slowly I, I worked up the energy to sort of pick up, to receive, to absorb some of what they were saying. And um, then things changed. You know, I knew I, I, you know, I had to make a few changes. I realized that I wasn't, of course, I wasn't telling the whole story of her life. She's led a hundred lives, actually, as has everyone. But Judy has especially, because she's a public figure, and she has a million friends, and she's traveled all over the world. She's just done so many things. Like, you can't put that all into film. You couldn't put it in a miniseries, right? But a miniseries would be good. Um, so, um, yeah, anyway, I started, I cut it up into chapters. I gave each chapter a head, a title, you know? So it's like as if there's some kind of certainty here, you know. But anyway, let's announce the structure. Like, let's impose it. And then every every chapter had an opening little speech, and so you would see Judy in public. And Judy's a different person in public than she is when we're having a chit chat, you know. When we're close, you know, she can really work up a crowd. She can. Um, she's like master, master of this situation. And just so articulate and so emotional and so smart. And to see that, you know, to see her and actually see the crowd going, yeah, yeah, you know, like, wow, all of a sudden there's this whole dynamic introduced, you know, this otherness. And then I could get away with just having her super articulate voice in there. Like I had the structure there and I was still, you know, honoring my friend. It's still at the intimacy that the two of us have, you know, and it's like, Okay, that's that's what I can manage. You know, somebody else would do better. Someone else would do it totally different. They would find, you know, they, they can shoot more in a more beautiful way. But uh, anyway, here we go. Here it is. There's like an, an, an instinct that you have in the way that you create and you create it on your terms in the way that makes sense to you. And then there's the external structure, which requires some sort of like beginning and middle and end and title. I always feel like when I'm making a movie, and I do love making movies, I'm, I'm making something else at the same time. You could call it an anti-movie. You could just call it a blind spot. It's the sum of all the decisions I didn't make, all the paths I didn't explore all the shots that I cut out in order to put that shot in, you know? Like a frame always cuts out more than it includes, right? I mean, that's the nature of any frame. And so you could say that the frame um, creates, like the world that's outside that frame, you could say is a kind of a blind spot of that frame, right? That's, that's the part of the world the frame doesn't see. And sometimes, maybe even often, it's necessary to be able to see that world, to see that other world. And for me, at least, because I have limitations, um, I need other people to, to see that. And I need them to describe it to me, to tell me something about that other place. And then my job as an artist is to um, stay, with the, stay with the troubles. Isn't that what Rebecca Solnit told us we need to do when working for climate change? to stay with the troubles, you know, no matter how difficult it might seem or impossible, the requests or demands, just like, I'm just here to, I'm just here to receive that, you know. This relationship that you mentioned, the relationship that you have with shame, has that relationship evolved and changed? 
Um, I think it's, it's easier for me to speak about fear. I think my relationship to my fear body, I would say, is more, is closer, is more intimate than my shame body, or at least like right at this second. I learned how to make um, pilgrimages to my fear body and to um, try to treat it with um, care and softness and easiness, even though all of the first feelings that are evoked in me by um, feeling all that fear are hard feelings, you know? And I want to start shouting, like, get up, like, don't just lie down there and be, and give in, you know? Like, don't just, like, lie down there dead, or this word in English, mortification, or to be mortified, you know? To be, to be uh, a living dead. It's something that's run through my whole family but especially on my father's side. I think he really spent some years in, of his retirement in this state. He's um, walking and looking and reading his paper or pretending to, or, but he's dead at the same time, you know? And uh, I've certainly experienced that many, many, many times in my life, like preferring that state of not feeling over the against the kind of overwhelming flood tide of sensation that, for instance, contact with other humans invariably brings, and all of their unexpected turns of phrases, their, um, you know, the bewildering network of defense mechanisms, their own fears, their triggers, their, you know, all this, like this very complicated thing that happens, the electrical storm that goes on when people are talking, hanging out, or being somewhere together. I've meditated today. I've done some breathing and I still feel the sensitivity of something that happened last night. And for me, at least it's um, just feeling very um, sensitive to buzzing. And I, I feel that energetically. I mean, this is a long winded explanation, but I feel energetically how the society is sort of buzzing and my pain body, for example, feels like there's an attack on it. But through my work, I understand that no one's attacking me, that that's like my, the experience of my body, that I feel that I am under attack by, you know, if someone go, is going too fast with me or if they're push, if they're kind of encouraging me or being too pushy with me. I'm experiencing that as like, I am not enough. I didn't, I didn't do enough. I should be doing more. And there's a sense of like, not good enough. Just like you, just like you said at the beginning, not, not enough. <laughs> yeah. The, um, we're in a culture which um, I think at one and the same time puts motherhood and mothers 
at the very kind of uh, sacred center of the whole enterprise. And at the same time, it's invisible, ignored, sort of obscured by these um, happy fantasy myths that seem to have very little to do with anyone's real experience, embodied experience. You know? And uh, I've certainly seen my friends struggle mightily. In fact, I can't think of anyone who doesn't feel like they're a bad mother. You know, it's like, um, it's like uh, motherhood comes with a passport that says you're not good enough. It's just automatic, right? Wow. And having to deal with this completely new relationship, which is central to your life, like this child, with this passport in your hand, it's a very difficult task. Yeah, it's really shocking how common it is, um, how many of us are walking around with this, uh, like a big signboard around our necks, like, I'm not enough. Um, and somehow, even though we've received so many messages in our life about who we might be, or how we might think, or how we might feel, or you know, but some things, some of these messages seem to stick around for a long time. You know, they have a long shadow. Sometimes that can last your whole life. Um, like after my father died, um, I started, uh, on the day that my father died, I started a therapy with somebody who taught me how a different kind of relationship with those parts of myself that were frozen. They were s stuck in time. The way that I experienced it is that everything in my body changes except for these pieces, you know? And um, because they're not integrated, they're not part of me, even though they're central to me at the same time. So it was necessary to go back and try to um, touch them again, even though that was like indescribably painful, just indescribably painful. And um, yeah, we did a lot of good work together over the last the two years or so, and it took a year and a half, two years. And uh, yeah, some, some, some change was, was actually possible. It was amazing. But even though, like, when scientists start to describe the brain and the, just the, the myriad connections and interconnections and the different kinds of firings and, and the sort of so-called neuroplasticity and how we're so like adaptable creatures and blah, blah, blah. And, but it's like, yeah, but everyone I know just deals with the same thing, like again and again, you know, it's like, it's your thing. It's your, it's your special problem, you know, that you have, like your, like your special friend, you know, in a way. And, um, you know, I guess it's an invitation to um, make friends with your limitations or to learn how to be kind with your um, inabilities or difficulties. I think it's really brave when people choose the path of feeling into something and wanting to work on something, wanting to sit with something. I don't think that there's like a need to to push exploring certain parts of ourselves. It's, it's, it's more like what's arising, what's coming up right now, like what needs to be looked at right now. It feels like death 
or loss in some way forces us to look at something, to look at some part of ourselves that we haven't maybe looked at yet. Yeah. I think of it as a, as an appointment that you have. And, um, yeah, you're not always in a place, exactly as you say, you're not always in a place where you can make that appointment, you know, you can, you can show up the way you need to so that it doesn't destroy you again or crush you or turn you into something. Um, but on the other hand, um, at some point, you're going to have to make that appointment. Like, or you live in a smaller way, right? You just sort of, um, okay, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to um, turn the backyard into a uh, like fallow field, you know? And it'll just be sort of part of the neighborhood, you know? That's not part of what I am anymore. I'll just leave that alone. Because I can't, like, I, I, I don't have the strength to deal with it. What I experienced is um, uh, kind of an inheritance. And um, those were part of, you know, I, I inherited many things like physical characteristics and psychological dispositions and whatever, inclinations towards certain diseases and anxieties and etc. But also um, memories. I inherited memories from my parents. They were just these giant things that happened that they they needed to survive, so they couldn't sit there and you know mull it over and um, let them let themselves you know slowly absorb it or whatever. Like they just needed to keep going, you know. That's and they were younger, a lot younger, and so they just had to keep going. And so when the time came, they just sort of passed that along here, like the family heirloom or something, you know. It's not a treasure chest filled with, I don't know, gold and diamonds or something. It's filled with the experiences that couldn't be looked at, the experience of war, of surviving a war, which has happened just so often, you know, decade after decade in human history. And... Um, yeah, then it's a question of how do you, you know, what do you do with this memory that is both central to my experience, central to who I am, and also like it never happened to me, you know, except it's, it was in a way the environment that I grew up in, these memories. It was more real than what I could, you know, touch with my hand, you know, it was more real than anything. I think that's why I'm interested in maybe changing the form of how movies are made. Because the way that things simply appear, like I always had this feeling, oh, but that's not how things really are. You know? Like I look like I'm living in this very safe, quiet, far away suburb. Everything's just easygoing, you know? But I wasn't living in, in that suburb. I was living inside these memories. They were not easygoing. They were not safe. And um, other people didn't seem to see them. Or they were different for other people. You know, they have People who are living inside their own phantoms, mirages and fantasies and, and hand-me-down memories. They'd opened up their own Pandora's boxes 
and lived with his results. Is there anything that um, you're working on right now that really excites you? I know you're probably working with a lot of things at the same time. Um, I'm working on an adaptation of a book by the Italian feminist historian Silvia Federici. It's about the origins of capitalism and the witch hunt. Her research has shown that um, capitalism wasn't simply a new system of um, a new economic system. It was a new system of morals and a system which assigned a very different roles to men and women that they had ever had. And it started with a terrifying two-century-long campaign of um, terror um, that was led by all of the leading ruling class components, the church, the um, aristocracy, and the rising middle class, the bourgeoisie. And, uh, and it was aimed at women, the bodies to control the bodies of women, to destroy, to destroy women. And um, one of the things that's um, really driving the movie is Federici's, um, she, she writes a, a new introduction to the book, and it's really startling, where she says that um, when she was doing work in Africa in the, in the 80s, in three or four different countries, Nigeria, etc., she was noticing that all the same things that she had been writing about were happening again. All these fights around abortion rights, for instance, all these fights around uh, land and water rights. Um, so um, I think the, the um, battle or the struggle around women's autonomy, women's bodies, and women's experiences, like under capitalism, those struggles will never end, I think. It's really such a deep, deep part of the system, you know? And I see it over and over again with my women friends who have experiences that um, if they were men, those experiences would have a library's worth of research done about those, about those experiences. And, those, and all the questions that arise out of them would have been would have been asked in many different ways. It would have been studied. It would have been under, understood, you know. There would be like national menstruation holidays. The, um, we're in a culture which um, I think at one and the same time, um, there would be, you know, there'd be all kinds of, you know, we would live in a different culture, you know. Anyway, that's what I'm working on. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here, and I will look forward to reading this book. Thank you so much for listening to Big Tree Mind with Lana Lantos. If you have some time in your day and would like to write a little bit about who you are, about where you're coming from, about how these episodes have helped you, as well as about any requests you may have, any questions you would like explored in upcoming episodes, please write to lana at bigtreemind.com.